Coming up on this week's show, a new game for the least successful console ever. A cheap solution for upscaling your Amiga. And we get the inside story on Die Hard Trilogy with Simon Pick. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week by our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. And if you're a fan of the Game Boy, look out for their amazing new Game Boy, the Box Art Collection, coming very soon from their website, bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 257, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our weekly retro gaming geek out session where we reminisce about the golden age of video games. And we bring you a veteran of the industry as a guest on the show each week. Now, today, we're going to cover so much with our guest this week. We're going to be joined by Simon Pick, who um, he did a load of stuff, including he was kind of the guy who was known originally as the king of doing Commodore 64 arcade conversions, wasn't he? Yeah, so, you know, UC64 fans are really going to love this. Um, he did Silkworm, worked with that team, uh, Gradius, uh, Shinobi, Narc, pretty big titles. But then he also went on to the NES, did uh, Rodland, which is one of my favourite little arcade games, uh, Lawnmower Man, and I must say my number one game on the PlayStation, Die Hard Trilogy. And, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about that game because it was pretty much three games in one. What I absolutely love, because I love Die Hard Trilogy, is Ravi actually asked him about the violence in the uh, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, where you turn the light violence up all the way <laughs> to number 10. Um, so it's a really, really cool interview because that's such a cool na- uh, game. And I was actually messaging my mate about it and how we used to play it. And I was like, never guess who we've got on the show. So, yeah, definitely one to listen out for. You know, (laughs) I can still do all the um, voices. Like, there is firing in the terminal. (laughs) uh, Can I get an aspirin? (laughs) Sorry, pal. (laughs) Such a good game. Iconic, man. But if they ever want to do a remaster, Ravi, you've got to be the first point to call. Oh, that's it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Simon Pick, he's going to be our special guest, uh, talking about everything from the Commodore 64 through to the NES, and then, of course, those uh, early PlayStation days as well. He'll be coming up in around 20 minutes from now. Now, we have got lots of stories to get into this week as we settle into 2021, and we're all kind of back to work now, and uh, took the Christmas decorations down today. Oh, my tree's in the garden. I'm <laughs> ready to get burnt. <laughs> Till next Christmas. Yeah. He's plastic one, by the way. Burn it. <laughs> it kind of is weird, though, isn't it? you take it down. It kind of feels like we've just moved into our house again now. Yeah, it makes your front room look so much bigger. You're like, what is this? <laughs> Have the walls moved? <laughs> it was funny because yesterday, yeah, the, the place where the Christmas tree was, right next to the TV, I said to Samantha, you know, it's a bit bare that space. We could get like a cabinet in there. I could, you know, get a console or something in there. She's like, no, there's <laughs> okay, nothing wrong with having an empty something. space. You <laughs> could get the, um, the out one run. <laughs> with the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might have to next, wheel it out the way to get through the front door. But Next yeah, year, you'll find a Christmas tree in the middle of it. Yeah, probably. Right in the middle of my Ferrari. (laughs) So, uh, I mean, there are some good news stories starting to come out as 2021 gets underway. This one, though, I didn't think we'd see in any year, particularly not 20 years after this system was released. A new game is coming out for the new one. Now, I'm sure (laughs) there are going to be lots of people who are like, what the hell is the new one? Uh, Yeah, I I know that it it was like a 
DVD player that had a gaming system built into it. And uh, I know that Jeff Minter did a rather nice version of Tempest. I think it was Tempest 3000 on it, but literally know nothing else about the platform. <laughs> and That's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and I've only ever seen one on Jeff Minter's stand at Play Expo. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, pretty much that's it. I think, like you say, there was only ever eight games um, and two of them only worked on Pacific models because of there was like because it was just built into the DVD player. It was like an added feature on the DVD player, and you just got a controller kind of chucked in the box. But yeah, one of the games that came out on it was Iron Soldier Three, which is the sequel to Iron Soldier One and Two for the Atari Jaguar, which did really badly when it first came out on the PS One. So to kind of try and revitalize it and make a little bit of money, they ported it to the new one. Uh, good plan around 2001 <laughs> and it just flopped and it it was one of the games that only worked on certain new one models um so yeah so it's coming out um it's going to be a spring release apparently 2021 um it's coming out on the new one <laughs> it's an official licensed game it's been picked up by songboard um so they're going to be bringing it out they usually bring out like you know obscure games a little bit like limited run um, but it's going to come out in a DVD box with a 26-page manual, and it will only work on the new one, <laughs> um, which is just absolutely crazy. This must be the first, the first game to come out since those eight, you know, those eight games. Like you, you usually see, like you know, there's more Dreamcast games have come out in the last year than they've come out in the last 20 years and stuff like that. There's always, you know, Mega Drive games coming out and stuff, but this must be the first new one game to come out since the original eight games, I reckon. And they must be rare as well to get, you know. Yeah, if you go on eBay to try and get just a DVD player with the console, I'm sure they're like a thousand pounds. They're like really expensive. It is crazy because the new one's actually kind of a system that I do want in my collection because it's really the the spiritual successor to the Jaguar. It's a lot of the same team. I think, you know, the Jaguar was the, from memory, I want to say the Flare 2 chipset. Okay. And I believe the new one's a Flare 3. Right. So a lot of the same team. That's why Jeff Minter was involved. And that's why you get games like, you know, Tempest Mm -hmm. 3000, that was a sequel to Tempest 2000 on the Jag. And then Iron Soldier, which was actually the first one was a standard Jaguar game. Yeah. Um, And that is one of the best games on the Jag. If you're into kind of like, you know, mech kind of game. Um, I I think the second one came out on the Jaguar CD. But then they did do, yeah. yeah, they did a port to the PlayStation after that. But really the new one, I mean, because I'm a Jaguar fan, the new one, kind of in the Jaguar Part 2, is something I've always been interested in. But also it was kind of a bit inspired by the um, the 3DO philosophy. You know, this kind of like, we want a games console that will be in every living room, standardised hardware, so technically people won't have to go out and buy standard games consoles that will be built into their DVD player, which, you know, was probably a good idea. It did mean that, the one thing I always think about this, if it did succeed, it would probably mean that then console development would have completely stagnated because you know they'd only develop games for the hardware that people have got in their home yeah so it would have, would have been a bad thing i think but um yeah new on dvd players you could get them for pennies a couple of years ago but yeah like you said they go for a fortune now I was gonna yeah say, it's, they it's, seem it's, to be um international sellers from america at the moment that are, are, are selling them but then you have to pay postage on top of that as well so you have to get a DVD player. Uh, search for just DVD player and see if you find the logo. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's right. the way to get it, it. It's one of them. If you spend it for like, if you buy like a thousand pounds one, you, you're going to have to say to your wife or whatever, like, oh yeah, it was just a cheap DVD player from Argos for, <laughs> for 20 pounds. <laughs> Why is it in your glass cabinet then with all your other rest? <laughs> oh, well. 
Yeah, but if you did get hold of one of these um, and you've been itching for a new game, because the thing about it is, I mean, I've got friends, because I know we've talked about the new one briefly on the show before, um, and I think on the Jeff Minter episode, we kind of touched upon it then. Mm. And I had a friend of mine message me saying, um, because you guys have been talking about it, I've actually picked up a new one oh, wow. and got one in my collection now. But again, games are quite hard to come by for it. So um, and you've got this company, uh, Songbird, and they actually do, they kind of re-release out-of-print games, mainly for the Jaguar and the Lynx. So they put out like, you know, a few games like Soccer Kid and Worms on the, the Jag over the last few years. So they kind of specialize in that. And um, they said they needed 100 pre-orders by the end of this month for this uh, Nuon project to get the green light. And I think they've got about 120 now. Okay. So it is going ahead. So if you've got a new one and you're itching for a new game to play on it, and Iron Soldier, I mean, I've not played any new one games apart from the Tempest 3000 one that we saw on Jeff Minter's stand-up play expo. But I'd say based on the, the Jaguar release, Iron Soldier is probably one of the best games on the platform. Oh, it's good to see. And I guess the game controllers are going to be another really rare thing as well. Yeah, it's the thing. <laughs> With Iron Soldier, it is a bit fiddly with a Jaguar controller. Playing it on a DVD remote control will probably have its challenges, I think. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think you know the fact that we're getting a new Nuon game in 2021. Uh, yeah, this year's already started to surprise me, I think. So if you want to back that, uh, I'll put all the details in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, following on from that, let's talk about Atari because it turns out we did a patron's hangout actually the other day. And um, I think someone in the patron's hangout was a bit like, uh, we're talking about the Atari VCS, mm. the new version of it. And they're like, oh, that's vaporware. And then someone else was like, now people have started to get them. So the new Atari VCS console, the new version of it that, you know, kind of looks a bit like the classic wood grain console and uh, keeps its name, has started to land into the hands of people who backed it on Indiegogo. Yeah. Um- it seems rarer than the PS5, which I think is yeah. quite funny. And it's still not there for public purchase. They're saying summer 2021 for that. But yeah, it's land, like you say, it's landing on some people's doorsteps, but with no kind of like notification of of it. It just kind of, it's just appearing apparently. Like they, they don't know it's coming. Um, so people are reviewing it and getting their hands on it. And, you know, I'm not a technical guy, but long story short, you know, from what you guys have told me and what the kind of the Hangout guys have told me and stuff, it is pretty much exactly what we expected it to be um, when we've discussed it in the past. It's just kind of like a, a nice-ish pre-made computer with Atari Classics built in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nice review that they've done on a Gaming Revolution. So they're looking at all of it. But you're right, it's like a kind of mythical beast. It just uh, turns up. and uh, I love that. You're waiting for your Morrison's delivery. <laughs> The doorbell rings and all of a sudden you're like, oh. There's a VCS. (laughs) I remember ordering that. But I still want my ice creams. (laughs) Well, this review is really interesting. It's saying, you know, there's there's a lot of problems which we fully expected. Mm. And um, I'm saying there's a lot of stuff to do with connectivity issues, actually. So even the controllers for the VCS are having problems with connectivity. The Wi-Fi is dropping out as well. Um, so they're preferring to use the Ethernet port. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that could just be this guy's individual unit. We don't know that. Oh, but yeah, yeah. He could yeah, have tons of interference yeah. in his house. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but also they're saying it comes pre-installed with the Atari suite. That's the kind of only software. So there's no real killer apps. They do say that they are going to be bringing exclusive titles to the um, Atari store. 
But another thing that I found really interesting is um, they were talking about how it was, you know, you could boot multiple OSs on there. Mm. Um, but it actually turns out that the BIOS is, is locked. So wow. you can boot multiple OSs, but you have to do it off like a USB stick or you have to do it in a way that you're kind of defeating the BIOS. You know, it's it, I think it's password locked. So... Um, yeah, I think it's secure boot, isn't it? And that kind of limits the amount of operating systems you can run. I think they've got to kind of be built for it. And that yeah. Windows can and Ubuntu kind of thing, but yeah, a lot won't be able to. Yeah, some of those kind of Linux distributions and stuff like that. So, you know, this is this is a version that's going out to backers. It's not the public version yet. Hopefully with some firmware updates it can do it. But they are kind of saying what we thought, which was, you know, this is going to be an oddity and there's a bit of a scathing statement at the end where he says, I don't even think it's going to be as popular as the Ouya, which is uh, a bit of a killer killer statement there. I mean, looking at the specs of it, and I mean, we've talked about it on the podcast before. The thing about it is when this was announced a couple of years ago, it kind of looked like, you know, mid-level then. Um, but he's saying in this review, I mean, you've got a, an AMD Ryzen embedded chip in there. Um, an R1606G with the Vega 3 chipset, which is a system on a chip. Um, he's saying really, though, that's kind of a mid-range PC from a few years ago. So talking about performance, you're only really getting comparative performance to like a, a mid-range desktop PC. There's nothing amazingly powerful about this machine. You've got eight gigabytes of RAM, which is looking a bit anemic in 2021. You can upgrade it, but interestingly... It turns out that upgrading the RAM and the internal storage isn't quite as simple as you think. I mean, essentially, you've got to completely strip the whole system down to its motherboard by the looks of it to get access to them. So it's not something that, you know, changing the hard disk and the RAM for most end users, you know, like on the PlayStation, you can just open a door and put a new disk in. This is going to require a little bit more effort than that thing. And then you've got this um, operating system, which I know you were concerned about this, Ravi, when we mentioned it before what the Atari VCS system software would be like. Unfortunately, I remember you saying that you're a bit worried that it wouldn't perform very well. It turns out that the first version of it, according to this review, doesn't perform that well at all. Um, you've only got a couple of things on there. But he said, it's you know, even when you put it in 4K mode, the user interface is stuttering and lagging when it's on that resolution. Um, you get Atari vol- Volume 1 with a couple of classic Atari games in there as well. There's stuff like YouTube and Ant Streams on there by the looks of it as well. You've got your media apps like Plex and Disney Plus. You can run all those on there. But I mean, you can run those on like a, an Amazon Fire Stick. So it's nothing that anyone's going to buy this machine for. And the PC mode, that means you can boot into Windows 10. Really, you're just getting a low to mid-range performance PC booting into Windows 10. So for the price, I mean, how much was this retailing for when it came out? I think it was like nearly $400 we mentioned. It's interesting as well. I've seen people trying to run Cyberpunk on there. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No and they're doubt. like, look, cyberpunk's on the VCS and it's just really slow. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it kind of is what we expected it to be. I mean, there are people on this article here who are kind of scathing the review a, a bit saying, you know, your complaints are stupid. This is a pre-retail early release. Um, your reviews, disingenuous clickbait, someone is saying here. Um, so, I mean, it is. It, it's a very early first version of it. And some things can be improved. There can be more applications on the store. The problem I think they're going to have is they've got to get a big enough crowd on there to attract those developers. There are some things, though, like the hardware, that limited hardware that's not looking very powerful in 2021. There's nothing they can do to fix that. 
just release the case. We'll all buy that. <laughs> That's yeah, what I've said yeah. all along. <laughs> it does look cool. And again, I mean, we, we mentioned it last time. If this was like, you know, maybe 199 or 150 pounds, I'd probably buy one because it'd be a cool little media PC to put in my living room and run Plex on it and play a few emulated games and that kind of thing. But for $400, I mean, it's a bit of an ask, I think. Yeah, like, like you say, if they just released it for like 150 quid or just released the shell, yeah, like 80 quid or 100 quid or something, I'm sure it'd probably make so much more money than trying to release it as a as a console. But we'll see. We'll see how it does when we talk about it this time next year or this in the summer. Well, I know we have got listeners that did back it on Indiegogo. So if anyone's um, managed to find one, maybe in their Christmas stocking, maybe Santa came down the chimney with an Atari VCS on Christmas Day for you. Um, we'd love to know what you think of it. You can get us on socials at Retro Hour UK on Twitter and Facebook. Now, another game that we've been really, really hyped for, um, I know you're particularly excited about this. They're kind of hyping this up as the ultimate beat em up game. And I remember we talked about this, must have been about three years ago now, and it's finally been released. This is Paprium on the Sega Mega Drive. Yeah, this is a crazy story, this is. So Paprium, I didn't realise it was out until literally like yesterday. Um, And I remember my friend tagging me in this about, I was like, I'm sure he tagged me in this on Facebook like years and years ago. And it turned out it was announced and backed eight years ago now. Um, I think it was 2012, 2013. And it's it's finally out. People have got their hands on it. Um, and from what I understand, it's it's really cool. Um, it's taken a long time to come out. It's been a really weird journey. Um, the guy who made it, who I think he goes by the name of Fozzy, he's been really like cloak and dagger about it. People have been asking him questions when it's going to come out and he gives really cryptic answers. He's just kind of held on to people's money. I think it took four years to make it and then four years for it to come out. It's come out via Watermelon Games. But maybe the you know the weight was worth it. It, it. it looks like just a really cool, cool version of Streets of Rage. And it, it and it's on the Mega Drive cartridge and it's all Mega Drive, you know, it it is powered by the Mega Drive. There's some crazy chips on there and it's an 80 meg um cartridge, which is really Which is cool. massive for the Mega which Drive. Is, which is massive Drive. for the Mega Drive. They're they're comparing it to the size of uh, the Neo Geo games. Mm. Um, which are actually bigger. They're more like 100 to 400, um, but it does look really nice and it does run really, really cool. Um, and it's it's probably full of like hardware tricks as well. So no, yeah. n- no wonder it took them quite a long time because, you know, they're probably putting like every trick possible in to, to, to get this performance out of the Mega Drive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I can't remember the, the name of the chips they've got on there, but they've, you know, Watermelon are saying it's a chip they've made for the game, um, which is on there as well, which is really cool. Um, a couple of the reviews saying the build quality of the game isn't that best. It isn't the best, like it rattles. Um, and it just, well, the cartridge. Yeah, the cartridge. And if you take it apart, it's the cover over the chips. It's like loose. And um, I was watching, um, oh, which one was it? Game Sack's review of it, and he had a couple of the cartridges. He ordered a couple of different versions, and they all did the same. Like they rattled around, um, which I thought was quite interesting. And he wasn't too impressed with the box, like the quality of the box and stuff. But the game itself was awesome, apparently. Um, and what's really interesting is when you first put the game on, when you first boot it up, it boots up a Atari twenty six foot twenty six hundred version of the game as like a troll. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> and you 
whatever you do, like you die or anything like that, complete the game, it will just stay as this weird like little mini game, 2600 version. And it will only get past that if you turn, once you turn the game off and play it again. And then that's I wonder how many people have like played it once and be like, right, I'm sending this back. Yeah, exactly. Like they've had my money for eight years, but it's like meant to be a troll. And um, I don't know if people have figured out how to get back to that, but once you've seen it once, that's it. It's gone. Once you play on it the next time, you just play the normal game. <laughs> yeah, you know, now they've got the hardware, it might be a lot quicker for another project. You know, now they've done this chip and they've actually got the 80 meg car out there. They might be able to then use that basis to, to, mm. to create something a lot quicker. Yeah, I, th- I think they should. I mean, they're doing more more releases of the game because it's sold out. Um, so they've put up more pre-orders on their website for April. Um, but it's $129 now. And I think when you originally backed it, it was only like $40. Right. Um, so was, you pay to get in there early on these kind of things. Yeah, though, exactly. So I don't think I'll be buying it just because of the price tag. But I would love to see it on the Switch or something, um, you know, for like 15 quid or something like that. But what's really interesting is it comes, um, you can order it with a arcade stick as well called the Grand Stick, um, which apparently is a really good fighting stick, like a really, really good fighting stick. I've heard a lot of reviews saying how good it is. Um, you know, it's got all the Paprium artwork on it and stuff like that. And that's $169 if you want that just on its own. And then I think there's like an ultimate edition for $300. So it's not a cheap game, um, but it definitely looks cool. I really want to play it. My initial thought was I'll wait for Dan to buy it and then I'll play it. At his. <laughs> um. <laughs> you know, I was looking at, cause I thought, you know, it's obviously out in the cartridge and I thought oh, there's probably going to be like a ROM download yeah. to put on the EverDrive or something, but they're saying they're not going to do that. Mm. And I mean, I don't even know if you can put like an 80 meg image onto an EverDrive, I've got a feeling you probably can't. But maybe with that um, chip as well. Yeah, um, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, it's not going to emulate the, the custom hardware, um, which was my, you know, initially I thought I'll just get the ROM for it, but it turns out they're saying that they're not even going to release it for any emulation because it's not going to perform to the standard that they want it to. It's got to run on original hardware, oh, wow. which, you know, is it, it, it's a good thing to do because, I mean, they've mm. got 24 levels in here five playable characters it's you know uncompromised 60 frames a second 16-bit visuals are saying Mm. so it looks like i mean they've really gone to a massive effort over almost a decade to really make the ultimate mega drive beat-em-up game so i get i get why they don't want it to run substandard yeah and it's interesting that you say that because of um in the video i was watching about it he did try it on some clone consoles and it didn't work and he he felt um that it was because they'd actually put something on there to lock it out to stop it from doing that and apparently people have asked on the faqs why 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 is it doing this why won't it run and the response has literally been it's because it's not original hardware it'll only play on original hardware so which is interesting well when i've had a few beers on friday night and i buy it joe um i'll let you know what it's like (laughs) awesome now, if you want a cheap solution to um, upgrading your Amiga 500, then a lot of people often ask, you know, I've got like this old machine. How do I hook it up to my modern TV? With a lot of modern flat screens here in the UK, now not having stuff like Scott on them anymore, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get your old systems displayed on a modern TV. But now there is a very affordable solution using a Raspberry Pi Zero to get some HDMI output from your Amiga. Yeah, so this... this isn't just limited to the Amiga. So this works with anything with a, a RGB output. Um, it was originally developed for the BBC Micro. Um, but it's it's really interesting because it's always been a, a real struggle to get a good output from the Amiga and a good upscaler, uh, definitely for a cheap price. 
and you know all those different screen modes and stuff um it's really kind of hard to get and it's is for a long time we've needed this what it is is it's a raspberry pi zero and it's a little board now this board sits on top of the denise chip which is the um amiga's kind of graphics chip and it then takes the rgb out of the gp uh, io pins uh, and puts it into the raspberry pi zero it's then converts it like on the fly really quick using the raspberry pi hardware to hdmi now this is absolutely pixel perfect which is insane to get coming out of a, a raspberry pi and this solution i, I think it's going to be able to be used on tons of different machines um one great thing that i saw about it as well is that it does flicker free interlace now we used to have a thing called flicker fixers on the amiga and they were very expensive you put them on the back so you could get an interlace signal without the flicking and the kind of vibrating of the screen and uh this just does that beautifully and i've just seen a a review by uh jan beta and he's just kind of put one on his machine, got it all going. And I must say, it's very impressive and uh, a, a great solution for anybody that wants to upscale their Amiga cheap, which, to be honest, hasn't been able to be done for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that the previous solution was like the the Indivision, and they were like about £150, I think, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know... This is a really cool thing, uh, just using the Zero as well. It's cheap, it's available, and just this little custom board, you put the SD card in, the software does all the stuff for you. It is cool. I mean, I love how many uses you can get out of the Raspberry Pi, because I've actually got my hands on a BBC Micro, even though I promised the missus I wasn't going to buy any more machines. It's kind of <laughs> hidden away behind my desk. Um, but I mean, I've, actually, I've got a little SD card reader for that. It was only 20 quid off eBay. Very affordable. And then I've been reading that you can now use a, a Raspberry Pi as like, you know, a second CPU on the BBC Micro. It just amazes me, like the the infinite possibilities that the the Raspberry Pi has, you know, for these retro systems. I was even reading a guy the other day that runs a print server for his Amiga on a Raspberry Pi. So it lets him print out from like, you know, Wordworth and Final Writer via the Raspberry Pi onto his modern laser printer. Yeah, you're getting these new expansion boards now for the Amiga that have the Raspberry Pi within them, and yeah. you're able to use the USB on there, you're able to like mount stuff on there. So actually using the function of the Pi to increase your uh, functions on the Amiga or on other systems as well. And, and it's all kind of stemming from the BBC community. You're completely right there. And it's good, though, because, I mean, I love custom hardware, but if you've got this kind of commodity hardware that's, you know, the manufacturing millions of these machines and you can get them for, like, £25, it really makes sense to utilise them as much as we can, I think, in the retro community. So uh, love to see more projects like that. Great work. Now, let's talk about um, a really obscure platform. <laughs> I didn't think uh, we'd be talking about the start of 2021 again. Now, this is the, uh, the Atomis Wave. Now, this was a really obscure arcade platform wasn't it that was kind of a lot of people are saying this is kind of the spiritual successor to the neo geo mvs and apparently it's quite similar to the dreamcast hardware a bit like the uh, the sega naomi um but because it's quite obscure there hasn't really been that much focus on it but now there are some games that have been translated and ported to other systems including the dreamcast yeah so this is the uh thomas wave and it's made by um the Japanese company Sammy, 
Mm. Um, it's a jammer cartridge system. So basically you put it into your jammer cabinet and then you'd change the cartridges out. And there's quite a few games available for it, actually. Uh, uh, the rum- A lot of fishing games here. The Rumble Fish Sega Fishing Challenge. I've got my fishing rod for my Dreamcast. Will that work? <laughs> Extreme Hunting. Uh, there's a sh- Samurai, Samurai Showdown, King of Fighters. And what's happened is uh, developers basically created versions of these that are available for the Dreamcast. And he said that all of these games can be ported um, from the Atomis Wave to the Dreamcast. Now, he's released GDI versions, which was the kind of Dreamcast CD-ROM, but he's also going to do CDI versions. And uh, he's already ported Metal Slug 6 and King of Fighters. What I think is really cool is you can actually already get a hold of these. I think he's selling them, isn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. Which is really cool. So it'll be cool to see those games because I'm, I'm off the top of my head. I can't think. I love Metal Slug, and I don't think I've ever played Metal Slug Six. Um, right. I'm wondering whether it only ever came out in, in in the arcade. But it's cool to play these arcade perfect games on real hardware rather than on like Mame or emulation or anything like that. I mean, I guess is it still emulation? I guess or is it? I don't know. Well, they're saying, I mean, the, the Atomis Wave, which I've heard the name before, mm. and I haven't really been that familiar with it, because I, I was assuming the Sega Naomi was kind of the arcade version of the Dreamcast hardware. Uh, but they're saying that the um, the Atomis Wave was a collaboration between Sammy, um, SNK, and Sega, but actually it was more similar to the Dreamcast hardware than the Naomi. So it turns out that actually porting these games and getting them running on the Dreamcast is very simple. The only real differences between the two is how it processes, like, you know, the controllers and um, the input-output, that kind of thing. So really what they need to do is just kind of convert it to the Dreamcast controllers to get them running, and, you know, it's custom disk format. The Dreamcast gets all the good games, doesn't it? Like, they're even talking about um, Sega Saturn uh, games being, like, converted to work on the Dreamcast as well now. So, you know, the library for the Dreamcast just continues to grow. And it always felt like, I mean, the Dreamcast kind of felt like an arcade in front of your TV anyway, didn't it? And it proves that it was actually more like an arcade than we realised at the time, I guess, looking at this hardware. Yeah, totally. You're going to have to get your fishing controller out. (laughs) (laughs) But it's compatible. Sam's just going to walk home and come in and you're just going to be sat on your new Outrun arcade cabinet with your fishing rod playing (laughs) on your Dreamcast. Hiding your BBC. (laughs) (laughs) My Tori VCS. VCS, (laughs) I'm already excited for this year. You're making it sound awesome. I was going to say, there's all this cool stuff coming out with with Paprium playing in the background. (laughs) (laughs) I'm running into the first week of 2021. What a year it's going to be. So uh, yeah, if you don't want to get hold of those, I'll link it up and everything else we talk about. We put all the stories in our show notes. You can check it out on your podcast app or on our website at the RetroHour.com. Now, before we get into this week's special guest talking about Commodore 64 arcade conversions, the Die Hard trilogy, Simon Pick is on the way in just a moment. Let's give a big thank you to our amazing friends at the wonderful ExpressVPN. Now, I know, Ravi, you've always been a big advocate of privacy online. And obviously, with having internet service providers, I mean, here in the UK, there are only like a handful of ISPs that you can pick from. And a lot of them are kind of like monopolies. I mean, here, there's probably only two that I can get, I think, in my area. And the thing about it is with ISPs all around the world, not only do you get stuff like data caps and streaming throttles, and you know we see loads of complaints about those, but also it turns out that many internet providers log your internet activity and have actually been selling that data on 
to other companies and advertisers. So you can protect this by using a VPN. And our favorite one is ExpressVPN. Oh, I'm a big fan of Express. And you know, you're right there. You know, um, ISP selling off your data. Even when you're browsing online at the moment, you're visiting a website or you're watching a video or, or even getting a message. You know, sometimes it's trapped by the ISPs and that information is valuable. It gets sold onto data companies. It's like um, when you're shopping online and suddenly all the all the stuff changes to, to, to what you've been buying. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really kind of a bit scary. So the best thing you can do is get a... VPN because that encrypts all your data so your ISP can't actually see what you're doing and uh, that's really good and it's really simple to use as well it's just like one tap of the button on your device and it's really fast as well that's the best thing I love about ExpressVPN sometimes I don't know if it's actually turned on it's just so fast it's like normally browsing. Yeah, and it runs on all your hardware. I mean, you know, you can have it on your computer, on your smartphone as well. It encrypts all your data. It turns it all through their secure VPN servers. So no one can see what you're doing, you know, which videos you watch, which websites you go to, your friends, your messaging, maybe your, your business idea that you want to keep top secret. And ExpressVPN does it all without slowing down your connection, which is why they're rated the number one VPN service by CNET and wired. So if you want to stop handing over all your personal data to your ISP, and these are the massive tech giants who, you know, mine your activity and sell on your information, protect yourself with the VPN that we trust to keep us private online, our very good friends at ExpressVPN. And we'd like to give you three extra months for free on a one-year subscription. So you can visit this website right now. And of course, you'll be really helping out the podcast by doing this, expressvpn.com slash retro. So do that right now. Open a new tab in your browser, expressvpn.com slash retro, and make sure you're private and secured. Thanks to our very good friends at ExpressVPN. Now, we did have our first patrons hangout of the year on Sunday evening. And we, it was great to see a few new faces there as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really good fun, actually. Uh, we we have a usual patron crew that turns up, but then we had a lot more. I'd, at one point, I couldn't fit the amount of people we had there on our screen. So it's yeah. really good. But also we have the um, After Hours podcast as well, which is absolutely fantastic. Now, for backing us on Patreon, not only will you be able to join us, um, I think we're going to do another Patreon hangout this month as well. So we're going to be doing two of these. This is where on a Sunday night, we all just crack a drink, we relax, you know, we talk about retro gaming, what's been going on, a bit behind the scenes stuff about the podcast, just a chilled out chat with some mates, which, you know, you can either join us and join in with, or you can just sit back and watch it. You know, and a few people do that. And also you will get access to our second podcast that we do a couple of times a month, the Retro Hour After Hours podcast. Now on the current episode, we, we choose our favorite five consoles ever, which was a really difficult thing to do anyway, but to make things even more difficult... We tried to guess each other's. This was so hard. And I think we completely messed up yours and Ravi's. You guys got me pretty, pretty good. Oh, you're uh, so predictable. Jay. I'm really predictable. But yeah, like, man, <laughs> I did not expect to hear some of those consoles coming out of your guys' mouths, man. And I, I can't wait for us to do games. I don't think that'll be the next one, but we probably will do top five games at some point. Yeah. Uh, consoles was hard, but games is going to be even harder, man. I, I can't believe I picked the new one as my number one console. I know, man. That was such a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that I think the episode was about 
as long as a normal retro hour episode, about an hour and 15 minutes, wasn't it? So um, you, you are getting a lot of value for backing us on Patreon. But the main reason that we want you to back us on there is just to ensure the future of this show. Now, we do have sponsors that, you know, pay us a little wage for all the effort we put into the show. But on Patreon, all the money we get from that goes back into the running of the podcast. And at this time of year, I mean, we celebrated our fifth birthday last week. So that means stuff like our website hosting, all our plugins on WordPress, um, our hosting for the podcast, all of that is due again, which, you know, adds up to a good few hundred, if not thousands of pounds. Um, So obviously our patron pays for all that kind of thing. And the fact that we've been doing our show from home for the last year, watching we invest in microphones and mixers, without our patrons, we couldn't have done this. So without our patrons, this show would have stopped last March when we couldn't get in the studio together. Yeah, that, it would have that, just that, been, would have just been us lot doing a kind of phone call together yeah. and chucked out or something. <laughs> but now it just sounds professional and it's really good. So we absolutely love the support of our patrons. Yeah, and even stuff like you know VST plugins to get the show sounding nice after, and it, it just really helps us out. So if you'd like the show to continue throughout 2021, please consider joining us on Patreon. Come join us on the Hangouts, get the second podcast as well. And of course, you get an ad-free episode. You sometimes get them early too. There are a lot of perks on there as well. And of course, you will get a mention in a future episode of the podcast on the most prestigious high score table. You can tell your friends that you made it onto the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Is there anything cooler than that? Oh, not at all. And you know what? You don't have to score any points or do anything like that as well to get on the high <laughs> leaderboard. So uh, we'll give you a mention in a future episode, essentially. Like this week, thank you so much to the amazing Hooky, Simon Clark, Chris Pode, Mike Roach, and Martin Hopkins, who all made donations into our Patreon. Thank you so much, guys. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it all on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, next, we're going to get some incredible stories about porting arcade games to the Commodore 64, titles like the Die Hard trilogy. Our guest this week is Simon Pick, and he's next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, we are really excited to get some stories about not only games on the Commodore 64, but also going into um, games on the NES as well, the PlayStation. Our guest this week has done so much over the years. Let's welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, the fantastic Simon Pick. Hello, Simon. Hello. Hello, everyone. Great to have you joining us. Now, um, we always like to kind of get your uh, your geek credentials and kind of, you know, find out where your journey began. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into computers and video games when you were a kid? Um, so I had a ZX80 that was bought for me by my parents when I was about 15, I guess. Um, and I, I played with that and that was good fun, but um, fairly limited with what it could do it was you know black and white uh you couldn't have any animation or anything the screen would turn off every time you press the button it was it was kind of strange um and then uh we had i think my mother's aunt sadly passed away and she left me and my mum some money in her will uh, and i used that money to, to buy myself a bbc micro because we'd had them at school and i'd enjoyed tinkering around at lunchtime um so yes i got my own uh, bbc micro uh, and wrote uh, a game called Daredevil Dennis that was um, sort of the first thing I ever had published. Well, that um, must have been um, some kind of huge upgrade for you, going from a, a Z80 to a BBC Micro. Um, that machine, the Z80, a lot of people actually started on that. Um, do, do, do you kind of have warm feelings when you see a Z80 still? 
Not so much. It's I think um, I, I used it for maybe six months to a year and got frustrated with it. Um, so I think for me, the, 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 the fondness begins with the BBC Micro. That was an amazing machine. And suddenly I could sort of do all the stuff that I wanted to. I felt quite limited on the, the Sinclair machine initially. Well, how did you start programming and what kind of programs were you writing at first then? Was it just kind of like small applications, copy magazine listings, that kind of thing? Um, yes. I mean, like it's so like, like I guess everyone back then, um, it was hard to buy things at first. Um, but there were magazines, it was like your computer and various things where you could type in listings. Um, and I would type in a few that they generally never seemed to work. Um, but I think from the beginning, I was actually interested, more interested in, in, um, making up games, uh, than actually sort of coding for coding's sake, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, I lived up in North Yorkshire in a, a small seaside village uh, called, uh, what, seaside town called Whitby. Um, and there was amusement arcades there. And it was just when all the um, amusement sort of uh, arcade games started to appear. So I, I would go and play Space Invaders and Pac-Man and Pac-Man and all the, the early games. And then I'd come back and I'd, I'd try to figure out how they were they were written, tried to work, you know, sort of reverse engineer them almost. Um and I spent most of my evenings and my weekends just on my BBC Micro trying to understand how these things were, you know, worked. Uh, and I probably wrote Space Invaders like a hundred times and Pac-Man a hundred times, and um, slowly getting better and better each each with each iteration until I figured out how it they actually worked. So, were you doing this in um, Basic, or did you kind of jump into machine code at that stage? Um, at first, it was Basic. Uh, but that became pretty obvious that uh, that was too slow. Uh, I mean, BBC, the BBC Micro had a really nice version of BASIC um, and you could do a fair amount with it. Um, but you, you couldn't really do multicolored sprites on the screen uh, very easily in BASIC. So I think the first thing I actually figured out was um, how to write a sprite routine to, to, to render multicolored images onto uh, sort of a 16-color screen. Uh, and at first, that's all I used machine code for. So I'd write the whole game in basic, but then the actual bits that rendered the, the sprites on the screen was in assembly assembly language. And then slowly over time, I sort of dumped more and more of the, the basic and wrote more and more of it in, in 6502 uh, and came to really, really enjoy just the uh, the, the delight of, of, you know, 6502, how simple it was, because it's a very small instruction set. You can like do, I don't know, maybe 50 different things and it has three registers. So yeah, I was just, just going to compare that with t- today's assembly language um, where it is so complicated and the, the instruction sets are so big and the, the pipelining and the caching and the way that the hardware has evolved means that actually um, compilers and sort of non-humans are much better at generating assembly language uh, than, than people are now. Um, but back then it was pretty much... Uh, you could figure out a faster way of doing something. And if it took less cycles, if it took less instructions, then it was faster. Um, and that's not the case anymore. So it was it was good fun back then. And I think it's great that you say you come from Whitby because I love that place. And um, I, I was surprised actually because um, I didn't know that there were that many arcades there. Um, yeah, there were. I think there were three when I was there. So this was back in the 80s, probably 84, 85 something something like that or maybe even earlier than that um yeah and i'd go in with my friends and we'd sort of shove our 10 peas into the machines and, and and play them 
And I've just actually recently, off off topic slightly, I've recently bought myself um, a, a MAME emulator. So I've got a big arcade machine with 9,000 games on it so I can now play nice. all of those games again, which I just absolutely love. Um, and, and of course, family. you had Scarborough just down the road as well. I mean, I remember going to Scarborough yes. in the late 80s and that had a great arcade scene. Yes, absolutely. I would I would go there um, as well. So I think all of that was really formative for, for um, my entire career, basically. Had it not been for those arcade games, um, I probably would have been doing, I don't know, spreadsheets or something very dull instead of uh, games. Well, how did you go from kind of just programming on the BBC to releasing your first commercial title, which was Daredevil Dennis? Um, so I had a, a friend. Um, actually, I, I was born in, in London. Uh, and when I was about 12 years old, my sort of family relocated up to, to North Yorkshire. Um, and But my sort of best friend who I left behind in London he had, uh, I think it was his his uncle, owned a tape duplication factory, um, and they were duplicating tapes for Vision's software factory, it was sort of a, a, one of the first um, p- early publishers back in the early eighties, um, and they were they were looking for new software. So my friend said to me, "Oh, my my uncle knows someone that's looking for games. Um, what have you got?" And I had a, a load of stuff. As I said, most of it was just um, copies of arcade games. Um, but there was one that wasn't a copy of an arcade game. It was um, basically the, the beginnings of Daredevil Dennis that was actually uh, someone in a wheelchair jumping on. He had to jump over things, and it was all terribly non-politically correct, all written in, <laughs> in um, basic. And I gave it to my friend, and my friend showed it to his uncle, and his uncle said, this is sort of very inappropriate. It's quite good fun if you can make it not about someone in a wheelchair and maybe write it in, in assembly language so it's a little less flickery then we'll we'll think about publishing it so i went away and i did that and probably spent i don't know two or three months um putting that together um and actually now i think about it that was my first game that was 100 percent um assembly language everything else before had had a little bit of basic here and there so i sent that off to them and uh yeah they liked it and said we'll publish that for you and i was terribly excited i was 16 at the time uh, and I just thought, wow, this is amazing. Uh, and I remember thinking very clearly to myself, I don't want this. I don't want to be a one-hit wonder. I want this to be the start of a career. And and so it turned out to be, which is good. And I'm very very grateful for that. Do you remember the first time you saw Daredevil Dennis cassette tape in in a shop? I don't remember the first time, but I do clearly remember. Um, going into every shop that sold it. So, you know, if I was in Whitby, I'd go into WH Smith's or, or Boots or wherever you would get games and that would be on the shelf. Uh, and yes, I'd go into Scarborough as well and, and, and find it. And my friends would do the same. They'd say, oh, Simon wrote this game and they, they'd go and they'd point at things. There was a, a local a local computer game shop in Whitby uh, and I remember going in and they had it on the shelf for the first time. Uh, and the owner said, oh, do you want to sign this for me? And I felt really sort of ridiculous um, <laughs> that, that someone would want me to sign something. Um, but I said, yeah, sure, and signed it. Yeah, as a 16-year-old, that must have been so cool. Yes, and I think I was a, <laughs> a bit of an egomaniac at the time. I don't blame you. Um, I think you. <laughs> I was probably hideous to be around at the time. <laughs> well, the BBC Micro, I mean, it was an incredible machine. And, you know, having one of those at home, um, you know, at, at that stage, that must have made, you know, really opened up a lot of doors to you and really taught you about programming. I mean, why did you move from the BBC Micro to the Commodore 64 then? Um, so that was Vision. So the, the people that released uh, Daredevil Dennis said to me, um, if we give you a, a Commodore 64, will you 
port that game to the, the 64. And I said, yes, sure. And I think my um, school summer holiday was, was coming up. Uh, and so I decided I'd use my six weeks summer holiday um, to convert Dennis from BBC Micro across to Commodore 64 um, and started doing it and was just very bored with the game and wanted to make it different. So basically Daredevil Dennis on the Commodore 64 is a completely different game. It has some some vague similarities, but not, not very many. And I'm actually quite surprised that they didn't get really annoyed at me uh, and say, what the hell is this? We didn't We didn't ask you to write some other random game. We asked for, you know, Daredevil Dennis. Um, but nonetheless, they, they published it. Um, but I developed most of it, I think, for the first, I don't know, 60, 65% of that, um, I developed using tapes. And the, the Commodore 64 was so slow, you know, that I'd, I'd, at the end of the day, I'd save my, my progress onto to tapes sort of two or three times and come down the next morning and, and reload it. And it was just an absolute nightmare. And at some point I said to them, can I have a disk drive, please? Um, and they said, all right, then gave me a, gave me a disk drive. Um, but the, the, the Commodore 64 disk drives, they were so slow. Um, you know, they were a lot faster than the tape that was ridiculously slow. Um, I remember the first couple of times I used the disk, I tried to load something and I assumed it didn't work because it just stopped and didn't instantly <laughs> load. And I was used to, at the time we had disk drives for the, the BBC micros at school and they would load, you know, rapidly as disk drives are meant to do. Um, but yeah, Commodore 64 disk drives, they were just so slow. Well, you created Mad Nurse from Firebird, and that was a interesting and original idea for a game. Um, <laughs> like, where, what was behind it, and where did it come from? Oh, blimey, I don't know. I think that game was banned in boots, as I, as I recall. That's my, my claim to fame there. Um, I think that, that I was just after shock value back back in the day. Um, I, and we'll talk about that. I mean, there's other other things I've done which have been quite shocking in in, in games that I wouldn't do today as sort of a more mature, grown-up person. Um, but back then, as a 16-year-old, the idea of like a baby's electrocuting themselves or falling down lift shafts, I thought was really amazing and very funny. And I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't understand why no one else was doing it. You know, it seemed this is this is great. I think it all started actually with a sample. I realised that if I plugged this is so so old school. I realised if I plugged a microphone into the joystick port of my Commodore 64 and screamed loud enough, I could actually get like a one-bit sample. Um, so you get it to sound like a scream. Um, and I thought, oh, this is cool. I need to make a game that's got a scream in it. Uh, and I thought, well, babies scream. And that's that's where that whole game came from. I mean, you know, Firebird and Telecom Soft in general, they were a big publisher back then. I mean, what were they like to work with and how did you get involved with them? So I'm trying to think of my... So I worked with um, Colin Fewage. Uh, who was my, my contact there. I can't remember how he got in touch with me. I think probably what had happened was, um, I, yes, I, I'd written I'd written um, Mad Nurse, and I think I just sent it out to everyone in the world, as he, as he did back then. Um, and obviously, yeah, Firebird got back in touch and said, yes, we're, we're interested. So I did a few more games for them. Um, I, I continued to be interested in the whole sampling thing, um, and I know that, so I did a couple of games, one, uh, one called Slime is Mine that was basically just lots of uh, different sound effects that I'd recorded. And I did uh, Micro Rhythm, which was a drum machine, um, which again was just lots of samples um, played back. Um, and they, they hired me at, at one point to do, there was a, a game called um, Eyeball uh, on the, it was, 
yeah, Commodore 64 game, and they needed a sample of someone saying eyeball. So I recorded that for them. So if you go and find, it's probably on, on um, YouTube, I guess, these days. If you go and look up um, eyeball, uh, then that's my voice saying eyeball in the, in the background. How, what was kind of the process? Were you still plugging that microphone into the uh, into the joystick port then? Or did you have an actual sampler that you could use? Oh, no, I bought a, an actual sampler. So I was sort of a hobbyist musician back then. So I bought um, a, a MIDI uh, device that plugged into the back of my Commodore 64 that I could use as a sequencer to sort of control a couple of keyboards that I bought. And it also came um, with sort of a D2A converter and an AC converter and, and all that. So I was able to do um, samples, some sort of proper samples. And I, I figured out pretty early on um, that if you if you change the the volume uh, control on like, the Commodore 64, um, then you could make it play samples basically by changing the volume control thousands of times a second. You just sort of put the waveform into it, and it would it would it would work. Um, so yeah, as soon as I realised I could do that and get pretty high quality samples, um, I just yeah played played around with that. And in fact, I wanted to buy myself a drum machine. Um, and I, I, the justification I gave myself was, well, look, I'll, I'll buy a drum machine, I'll sample it, and I'll sell, I'll sell the game, which is MicroRhythm, uh, and that will pay for the drum machine. Which, and that's exactly what happened. And I actually, you know, sold the drum machine that I basically ripped off uh, the, the piece of software for more than I bought the, the original drum machine. So that was a, that was that was quite profitable. Nice. Um, you also wrote a game, Planet Search, for the Commodore sixteen. Uh, was it a challenge, kind of working on? the system after using the uh, Commodore 64? Yes, it, it was. And one of the, the problems that I had um, was I didn't have... Um, so on, on the Commodore 64, I had uh, an, an assembler cartridge and various bits and pieces that made it sort of easy to, to write. Um, I didn't have any of that on the, the, the Commodore 16. So I would write the whole thing, sort of compile it on the Commodore 64, save it to um, this disk drive, unplug the disk drive from the Commodore 64, plug it into the Commodore 16, um, load it down and run it. Um, so it was a fairly lengthy um, process to sort of get the get the game up and, and, and testing it. And I broke the, the the serial port on my Commodore 64 so many times because you're not allowed to unplug the, the the disk drive when the Commodore 64 was turned on. But I couldn't be bothered to turn it off every time, so I just unplugged it and probably yeah. Actually, talking about Scarborough, the nearest shop that could fix it was in Scarborough, so I would. You know, break my Commodore sixty four, and then have to jump on the bus and go go to Scarborough to get it get it fixed, and come back and. Um, so that that was challenging doing that, um, but again, that was that was during my I think second year at university during the the, the holidays where all my friends were off getting um, sort of jobs in bars or you know whatever students do, and I thought now I'm going to see if I can can write a game. Um, and, and make some money. So that was that was me being lazy, really, because I didn't I didn't want to go to after actually do any work. I thought I'll stay at home and see if I can get a, a Commodore sixteen game working. I remember that system didn't even have hardware sprites, did it? No, that's right. Um, so I think the the hardest thing in, in so it did have lots of different colors. That was very nice. So on the the, the Commodore sixty four, you had sort of fifteen colors or whatever it was, um, but that you actually had. Um, Sort of luminance, and you could you could yeah have bright bright things and dark things. That was really cool. So that was good. But yes, the downside was no hardware sprites. Um, and back then, I wasn't that smart at, at, at coding. And now I can see how I would have written decent hardware sprites. Um, but back then, I just needed I had something like eight or 
or maybe even 32. Anyway, a large number of variations of every single sprite uh, in every position within a character block. So I basically pre-animated everything um, and then we just stick the relevant the relevant character on the screen to get the smooth movement. Uh, so yes, sub, the sub-pixel movement was just done by generating um, characters that slowly move from left to right, if you see what I mean. Well, you did some, um, you kind of became known for converting famous games to the Commodore 64. And I mean, including the Konami classic Gradius or yeah. Nemesis, as it was known over here. So how did that come about? You kind of starting work on these arcade and console conversions. And how did you approach doing Gradius on the 64? Um, so the, yeah, Gradius was my first um, sort of project, which I'd been paid for up front. And I was a bit terrified ab- about that. Previously, I'd just written stuff at home and then send it off. Um, and there's you know, there's sort of no no real risk involved in that. If you don't finish the game, then you go, oh, well, never mind. Um, but once you signed a contract and people have given you money, um, that was a bit a bit stressful. Um, that came about because um, I was living, I was at university at the time, uh, and one of my friends, I don't know how he got this, but he got a job working uh, at Global Software, I think it was, who acquired the license for Nemesis, as it was called in the UK. Um, and he and he recommended me to to them because they were looking for someone to to do the conversion who knew Commodore sixty four hardware. And he said, "Oh, my my university friend knows this stuff." So I, I took it on. I was very naive. I think um, I did it not as a multi load. It was just a single, you know, everything loaded simultaneously. Um, I did all the the graphics initially myself and all the sound effects initially myself, and they were all pretty terrible. Um, and at some point, thankfully, someone said, you know, you need an artist. You need someone who can do graphics to actually make this look good. Um, and so they, they contacted um, Bob Stevenson um, of IO fame. Um, and so I got to meet him and, and, and Doug. Uh, and we sort of spent, I don't know, a week or so together. I think they came down to, to me where I was in Brighton for a week. I went up and spent some time um, with them in Edinburgh as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, Bob did some really nice graphics. Very, li- he was very limited in what he could do because I I put the whole thing together already, and the game was finished, which looked terrible. So he had to come in and work around my bad sprite sizing and all of that to to, to do the best that he could. Um, but it was amazing working with them because I really didn't know anyone else in the games industry at that point. Um, but working with with Bob and Doug, they taught me so much. I mean, Doug was is was and he still is an absolute genius and he taught me so much that sort of you know went on and I, I leveraged through the rest of my career pretty much so I'm very grateful for that so yeah then that that was the first so Nemesis was the first thing it was not that good I had a bad time doing it um, as I say I started during my summer holidays at university but I didn't get it finished in time uh, and so for the first month or so of sort of autumn term um, I was studying at university during the day and then going home um, and and writing Nemesis and it was hard. I was falling asleep in lectures and it was pretty tough. Um, and then they wanted the uh, the NTSC version, the American version, and it wasn't much work. It was basically changing it from fifty frames a second to sixty frames a second uh, and losing some vertical height on on the screen. Um, minor things. I was so sick of it. I said to 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 Doug uh, Doug Hare, um, "Do do you want to do this?" And he said, "Yes, fine." Uh, and I think they gave him a thousand quid or something to, to, to go and do that. Cause I was just so sick of it by that point. Well, you programmed the C64 
conversion of Shinobi as well, and that was a big arcade title. Did you get much help from Sega? And what was it like converting that? Um, so that's an interesting, interesting story with that, which is that I wasn't meant to be doing that originally. So um, Jane Kavanagh set up uh, the sales curve, um, uh, which later became Storm and then was it S- SCI, I think. Um, anyway, so she was setting up um, a company. She was looking for a development manager. Um, I just finished my degree um, and she used to work uh, for Firebird. So she sort of knew about me because of the work that I'd done for Firebird. And she contacted me and said, look, we're setting up um, a team. Do you want to come and be a coder for us? And I said, I don't, but I'm interested in being a manager. Again, I was looking for, I don't know, I thought that I I thought I could earn more money or something, I don't know, being a a manager. Again, maybe I was being arrogant. I've got my degree. I'm going to be a manager now. Um, So anyway, uh, I went and talked to, to Jane Kavanagh. I ended up um, joining her and hired the, the 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 team that became the team that did um, Silkworm uh, on the, the the Amiga and sixty four and all the the other things. Um, so while that was going on, I was sort of managing, and then we we hired another company. I can't remember what they are, but if you look on the other versions of Shinobi, it's it's whichever company did them, um, and they didn't have a Commodore sixty four coder. Uh, and Jane said to me, look, I know that, that you don't want to be coding anymore, but we need this. Uh, do you mind doing Shinobi? Um, and I said, yes, okay, go on. Uh, because by that time I was getting a bit sick of being a manager, if I'm honest. Uh, it was maybe six or seven months in. Um, so yes, I ended up doing Shinobi. They gave me the arcade cabinet in my house. It was quite nice. And we had we had all the original artwork. So I had some some artists uh, Ned Langman, I think, um, can't remember who else, but a couple of a couple of other artists who would who had taken all the original artwork and they sort of squashed it down into Commodore sixty four style. Doug Hare um, had taught me or shown me how to do a color scroll, which was very exciting. Um, and so I went ahead and said, "Oh, I can do color scrolls now." So Shinobi had like a, a, a color scroll, um, which was remarkable to me. It was such a, a very clever idea. Um, that worked really really very well um so i implemented that and then i went back to being a manager afterwards but actually it turned out i didn't really enjoy being a manager and the buzz of um working on shinobi um yeah i missed that so i ended up doing a couple more conversions um for sales curve actually while i'm while i'm thinking about it one one of the really cool things that i did on shinobi was i I wrote a tape loader there's a guy called uh steve snake um, who is uh, Steve Palmer, I think his full name is. Uh, again, he was a, a, a genius, a real smart guy. I hired him uh, to Sales Curve when he was maybe 17 years old, something like that. And he came in and just knew everything. And I said, look, I want to write a tape loader. How do I do that? And he basically told me how to write a, how to write a tape loader. Goodness knows how he figured it out. Um, so I wrote a tape loader and you could play the, 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 um, the shuriken throwing sub game uh, while you were loading the main game, and it was really cool, um, but they couldn't they couldn't duplicate it in the duplicating factory, which is really very annoying. Um, so we we went back and used um, a different sort of standard loading thing, and then we found out like a month after it had been released that actually they had a dry joint in the duplicating factory, uh, and subsequently when fixed, they it all worked fine, and so you could have had um, a sort of a mini game while loading Shinobi. And I was really annoyed that 
That, oh, nightmare. That didn't make it through. Well, I mean, that stage, I mean, you were really showing your skills as a programmer as well. I mean, the fact that you're doing all these different genres as well. I mean, did you kind of enjoy that variety? Because at the time, a lot of people became known for, like, you know, being the platformer guy or the adventure game guy or the racing or the, or the shooter. But you seem to be doing loads of different genres. Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of it. Um, so let me try to, to think about the games that I was doing. So while, while I was at the sales curve, Basically, um, they would get whatever they got in um, and, you know, they would say, Simon, are you interested in doing this? Um, and I don't I don't know what it was that motivated me. I think maybe doing different things, yeah, I, I found interesting. So, and also the scale of things. So I did, uh, what else did I do? There was NARC, which I, uh, I did. So again, that's a, a scroller, um, but it's more of a sort of a shooty, a shooty sideways scroller that I enjoyed. And I think that um, technically speaking, now that I look, back on it i think that for commodore 64 games i think that was the um the the peak of the technical um technicalness that was when i knew how to do pretty much everything on the commodore 64 and if you look at it now it's got like it's it's a color scroll it's got a little scanner up the top it's got spray painted letters that that, that come in it's got i remember i was being i was particularly pleased when i figured out how to get the dead enemies to sink down into the floor um because that was that that was quite tricky at least i thought it was going to be at first i was involved um yeah in silkworm um we had someone who actually came on to to do that again someone who was quite quite junior and it was his first game warren mills who again became um really smart guy he and i kind of co-wrote that um together at first on the commodore 64 uh while ronald um was doing the the amiga version ronald and john did the amiga and st version which is a beautiful, a beautiful game. Well, another beautiful title you were working on was uh, Rodlands, the conversion for the NES. And like, oh. how how was it working on uh, the NES console compared to like Commodore sixty four? It was really very, very nice. Um, the, the 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 great thing about the the NES is that it, it had two hundred and fifty six sprites. I mean, they were only very small. Um, but I just loved um, sort of bits, explosions and stuff. And having been able to move 256 things around was great. And having the hardware scroll, it could do sort of multi-directional scroll um, very, very trivially. I mean, doing a scroll on the Commodore 64 was an absolute pain and it took a lot of your CPU time just to scroll the screen. Um, but the NES was great. The scrolling was 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 done in hardware and it was nice and smooth and easy. Number of sprites was really nice. Um and we had a lot of a lot of memory. The actual um, RAM was very limited. It was I can't remember now. It was maybe something like two K, four K. It was a very very limited amount of RAM. But then you had the whole game in in ROM. Um, so if you needed to have sort of big data tables or stuff, you you could um, on the Commodore sixty four. You were always very aware that that you only had sixty four K to fit. The code and the graphics and all the, the sort of the, the runtime memory in, so that was always at the back of your mind. But on the NES, um, you know, you could take as much memory as you needed, and if it meant you had to go up to the next level of cartridge, then that was you know fine. Um, so that was nice, not having any memory um, concerns. It was interesting that game um, originally uh, someone else was going to be working on that title, and I went with with Jane Kavanagh. We went over to Nintendo of America. Um, and I was there in my capacity, sort of a, a manager, and to answer any technical questions. I think I think I got to meet Howard Lincoln, which was nice. Who was then the uh, running uh, Nintendo of America? 
yeah, never thinking I would actually, you know, develop on the Nintendo. And then we came back and the person that was going to be doing the game for some reason couldn't or had to work on a different game. So again, Jane said to me, look, I know that you didn't join as a coder and blah, 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 but do you want to do, <laughs> do, you want to do this? And I said, yeah, okay, go on. Um, so I did that and enjoyed it very much. And I think it is now, isn't it the, um, the, the rarest cartridge in the world? Because it only went on sale uh, in Spain, I think, because it just came out as the SNES appeared. Um, and I think they only duplicated like 6,000 copies. So it's incredibly rare. And ironically, it's the one game of mine that I don't own. I have, I have every, I have copies of every other game, but not Rodland. Um, and if you look it up on um, eBay now, it's sort of six or 700 pounds, which is just ridiculous. I thought you were going to say you had a, a box that you were just sitting on with <laughs> new old <Yeah>. stock. You <laughs> know? That's my retirement fund. Yeah. No, I wish. <laughs> I wish. Well, I mean, you, you actually stuck with the 8-bit platforms well into the 16-bit era. I know you did an indie heat for the Commodore 64 in 1991. Yes. Um, obviously, the ST and the Amiga were kind of, you know, the Super Nintendo wasn't far away then. Why did you stick with them for so long? And what was kind of the market like for those machines at the time on the 64? Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, so at the time I was, again, working for Jane Kavanagh at the sales curve. So I was just pretty much a, a coder for hire. Um, in the early days, I would sort of be getting royalties and stuff. But by the time, uh, early 90s, companies didn't offer royalties anymore unless you were sort of the, you know, you, you owned the company or something. So I was pretty much just a gun for hire. Um, so sales, I've no idea how these things sold. sold. Um, I mean, we were still doing um, uh, Amstrad and Spectrum versions of the games. Uh, and I, I think that they presumably would sell as well enough to cover development costs but there, there wasn't much much money to to be made back then i think something like a, a development would be i don't know 50 grand or something like that for for a 64 title sort of all in um for you know an artist and the music and the coding and um so i don't know how many you'd have to sell to get that kind of money back but i don't know 10,000 probably and then you'd, you'd make make the money back uh, and the rest was all all gravy, I guess. I guess on those machines as well, I mean, piracy must have been quite a big issue. I know the amount of kids at school, that the day they figured out that you could copy tapes in your mum's tape-to-tape machine, that kind of changed a lot, a lot of things for a lot of kids. Yeah, and I've no idea why. why I, mean, I remember at the time you could buy hi-fis with dual cassette decks. You know, clearly yeah. they were designed for piracy. Uh, and the fact that they were allowed is just, I, I find, extraordinary today. Um, given how litigious we've become now, I think if if someone released the equivalent thing today, uh, it would just you know be shut down as as completely illegal. I think. Well, talking of today, what do you think about the recent interest of uh, the C sixty four? Would like the C sixty four mini being released and stuff? Would you ever do a game for it? Um, I do frequently still dream about um, that I'm working on Commodore 64 games and I wake up in the morning, I go, wow, that would be amazing. And of course, I, I in my brain, I, it sort of confuses um, uh, all the other consoles that I've worked on, you know, between now and then. Um, but yeah, so I think it would be fun to, to, to write a Commodore 64 game knowing all the stuff now that I didn't know at the time because um, I've learned you know, so much over the, the past however many decades have, 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 have elapsed that I think that, yes, I could do something fairly amazing. But um, 
I don't know. I, I think that uh, I've have I turned my I've kind of turned my back on the games industry a little um, because I don't I don't really like where it is today so much. I'm big fan of retro retro stuff. Um, I, I kind of lost interest maybe ten years ago. So I was at uh, Electronic Arts um, for seven years working on some big titles there, um, and I didn't like being sort of a small part of a big cog. So I was working on titles where there was me and 150 other people um, and the, the the pressure to hit deadlines and it was so commercialized and it felt like we could have been making anything at all. We could have been making loaves of bread. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't like that. And that sort of got my back up a bit about the whole games industry. So, yeah, I've turned my back on it a little bit. So conflicted, I would like to make another game, Absolutely. But I'd like to make a game as they used to be back in the 80s, I think. You know, there is a lot of kind of like Kickstarters and stuff these days for retro games on like 64s and NES and that kind of, A lot of them do really well. I mean, there is a big market there for them. Right. Maybe I should maybe I should look at look at that. I mean, I actually made um, an iPhone version of Daredevil Dennis uh, called Flipping Sheep that was in the iStore for a year or so. I think I sold like three copies, mm. <laughs> something like that. Um, but that was that was nice to do, yeah, to get to get something out. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll do that. I mean, kind of moving forward into like the 32-bit era. Then I mean, talking about Probe and the the early PlayStation and Sega Saturn. I mean, what what was it kind of like in those early days of um, the the super consoles, as they were often called back then? And how did you get involved with Probe? And what was the atmosphere like back then? Um, so when when I was working at um, Sales Curve. Uh, doing all the other 64 games that we, we talked about. Um, I, I hired uh, a developer called Greg Michael, who came to me. Uh, he was quite young. He'd never written anything before. And he said, look, I, I, I'm really keen. I want to write games. And I said, go go away and write me a sideways scrolling demo on the ST, because I knew, I knew that was hard, and I'll give you a job. Um, and being the amazing person he is, he said, sure, and went away, came back two months later with this amazing sideways scrolling demo. I said, okay, fine, you're hired. Um, so he joined um, Sales Curve uh, and he worked on uh, Double Dragon, I think. He, he wrote the, the ST version of that, I, I believe. Um, he then left um, Sales Curve and went to work for Probe Software. Um, and pretty much from that point for the next two years, uh, every sort of couple of months, He'd phone me up and he'd say, "Hey Simon, do you want to come and work at Probe for for uh, Fergus, uh, Fergus McGovern?" And I said, "No, you're all right. I was in, you know, I was kind of enjoying being there." Um, and eventually, um, one day I said, "Okay, I'll come and I'll I'll, I'll see you. I'll come and talk to Fergus." Uh, and Fergus uh, just sat me down and he said, "I've seen all your games. I think you're amazing. Come and work for me. How much money do you want?" And I sort of said, "Oh, I don't know." Made some silly number trying to shut him up and he said yes fine and i thought damn i should have asked for more um <laughs> but so originally he hired he hired me um as a yeah a one a one one off sort of contract um to work on a, a game for itv it was going to be like the crystal maze the itv were doing some crystal maze thing um and i was hired to do that um i think it was on i think it was on the the, the playstation one um, it was before PlayStation was actually a thing. It was called the, the PSX back then. It was just a big, a big top secret box, and you had to sign, sign your life away to look at it. And 
only I was allowed to, to go into the room where the, the PlayStation was held. Um, so we started working on that and then ITV cancelled that project. They weren't doing it anymore. Um, and at the time, uh, Fergus was talking to uh, Fox about doing Die Hard, Die Hard um, games. Uh, and he said to me, look, sorry, the, the ITV game has gone. Um, are you, would you be interested in changing it and doing Die Hard instead? Uh, and of course I said, oh my God, yes. Uh, Die Hard being significantly more interesting than an ITV game show. And so I, I had about maybe two months where Fergus just said to me, look, go and play around with this machine, see what it can do, get to understand it. Um, and it was the first 3D machine, you know, that was that was out there, certainly that I'd ever, I'd ever used. I was just sort of sprite-based scrolling stuff, not done much 3D at all. Um, and suddenly having having the PlayStation, it was so phenomenally powerful relative to everything else I'd worked on um, that I just spent a long time making lots of cool demos. And I think a lot of them actually are on the, the, the YouTube making of Die Hard video, um, some early stuff. Um, but we hadn't seen what anyone else was doing. Um, and the whole development process was really terrifying because we were maybe one or two months away from completing when the PlayStation was launched. And we actually got to see uh, the quality of other PlayStation titles. And we were working completely in the in the dark. Um, and we had no idea whether we were doing something that was amazing or it was terrible. Um, so it was a bit a bit terrifying. And I think when when we actually got to see what everyone else was doing, we thought, okay, we've done sort of an average game. I mean, it came out along alongside some absolute... So Die, Die Hard Trilogy, this is talking about now, came out alongside some absolute classics. Um, you know, things like uh, Tomb Raider, for example. Uh, and, and yeah, other... Other other things that, that I can't remember what they are. Anyway, it was sort of the first wave of amazing games. And that was terrifying at first. We thought, oh my God, we are so sunk. No one is going to buy our game. Look at these amazing things that are that you know are out there. Oh, Crash Bandicoot was out as well, wasn't it, at the time? Kind of movie adaptions are usually seen as a, a bit iffy <laughs> when it comes to gaming. And they're usually not related that well to the franchise. Um, why was Die Hard a, a, yeah. a trilogy then? Well, we were we were asked by um, by Fox to do uh, a trilogy because I think I guess they wanted to leverage uh, their the, the, the three titles. It was meant to be coming out originally with um, Die Hard Three, sort of at the same time that Die Hard Three hit hit movie theaters. Um, but I think we were delayed, so we came out the Christmas after. It was going to be one game originally, and if you look at Alien trilogy, that was basically one game. Um, and they just sort of named, they split it into three and just said, yeah, this is Alien, this is Aliens, and this is number three. Um, but it was my my decision, because I was foolish and naive and didn't know about making 3D games. I went into Fergus and I said, look, this is meant to be a trilogy. Why don't we write, um, just write a 3D graphics engine, and then we can just make three entirely standalone games. How hard can it be? Um, and not realizing that it was incredibly hard. Um, and if I had my time again, I wouldn't have made three different games. Um, there was me uh, and, and uh, Greg Modden working uh, on the, the PlayStation version, uh, and then our code was ported onto the, the Saturn. Um, and it was the first thing I'd ever written in C. Uh, it wasn't assembly code, it was, it was in C. Um, and Greg was fairly inexperienced as well, generally, in, in game development. I think he'd made one or two games previously. So really... Um, 
we were very naive. We didn't understand how hard it was going to be. Um, so making three PlayStation games, basically, among two developers is just insane. And I think both Greg and I almost had nervous breakdowns during that development time. So it was not not happy times. I'm not surprised because um, they were like three totally different genres as well. It wasn't just a rehash of the same game. It was like you had your shooting section, your kind of platforming 3D version in the tower, and then you had the driving section as well. Yeah. How did you choose the titles and uh, the, the, the themes that were going to actually be used for each Die Hard film? So uh, basically, um, they're just ripoffs of my my favourite games at the time. So Die Hard 1 started life as Robotron, because I just love Robotron. I think that still is. And I just played it yesterday on my arcade machine. Um, love Robotron. It's just great. I loved Crazy Taxi. So um, I'd seen Crazy Taxi at some trade show in the US. Uh, and so Die Hard 3 was basically, uh, yeah, I want to be able to drive freely around a, a city. So that was taken from that. And Virtua Cop, I also loved. Um, so Die Hard 2 was just a complete ripoff of Virtua Cop. And they actually brought us, um, they being Fox, brought us a Virtua Cop arcade cabinet. So we had we had that uh, in the office. And we at l- sort of lunch break, we'd go and play Virtua Cop, which was always good fun. It was a pretty violent title, the PlayStation version, with like blood splattering on the screen, people dying in credits, uh, getting burnt alive from the explosions. Um, yeah. Were there much kind of censorship requests? I know it was toned down on the um, Sega Saturn version. Um, no, no no censorship stuff at all. Um, so and this is returning to, to, to me, I think, as I was saying, uh, on Mad Nurse when I was younger and I couldn't believe that, that no one else was doing this kind of stuff. Uh, it was the same. I was just thinking, why is... You know why is no one doing all this blood and gore because it's great fun um again I, my sensibilities i think were probably not quite as refined as, as they, they could have been um the only problem we did have uh ironically was there was um, a point on i think die hard 2 uh where we made um steam come out of people's mouths because it was cold and it was chilly and we wanted to look like it was sort of their breath in the cold air um and we got pushed back from someone or other um i guess sony saying this looks like they're smoking uh, you can't have that so uh, <laughs> we were allowed to blow people up and have their skeletons explode out of them and all of that kind of thing <laughs> but heaven forbid they would be smoking a cigarette it was like it. uh very john mcclane having uh, blood splattered on the screen and then the windscreen wipers <laughs> just taking it off <laughs> yes um we, I really enjoyed doing that. I mean, that was just something I thought was fun. And I did it almost as a joke. Um, and then we showed uh, the 20th Century Fox producer, uh, a guy called Mike Arkin, uh, and he loved it. He just said, this is fantastic. Keep it in, which was quite quite surprising. And the burnt, there's um, burnt pigeons as well that amused yeah. me. I quite, I quite enjoyed setting fire to pigeons. And, and they keep flying as well. <laughs> They're on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I was an evil child back then. I mean, you mentioned the the Saturn version as well, and that was obviously quite different. I mean, the graphics weren't on you know up to, up to par with the PlayStation version. I mean, were the kind of issues converting that to the Saturn then with, with the hardware differences? Yeah, there? I think I mean the the code that Greg and I wrote, uh, mostly me, if I take if I take the blame, was awful. It was just atrocious code, horrible, horrible code, um, and they had to convert it to the Saturn, which um, was yes a less powerful machine. 
uh, and the the architecture was laid out in such a way that you had to sort of get your memory in little bits and pieces. You couldn't have big contiguous blocks of memory, which made their life really hard. Um, so they ended up getting um, a couple of other developers to come in and essentially rewrite a lot of a lot of it. So um, Die Hard Three on the Saturn was actually written by um, Ronald uh, Ronald uh, Viserik Pickett, who is the uh, Amiga coder uh, for Silkworm, who I sort of hired when I was a manager at Sales Curve. Brought him over to do the Amiga version of Silkworm, who again is a complete genius. He's he taught me so much. Um, so yeah, he worked on Silkworm, and then several years later came to to probe and did a really amazing um, job on uh, Die Hard Three. And I think Die Hard One and Two were ported, but I think it was it was tough, and I just don't envy the people that had to do that at all. Well, early motion capture was used, and I love it in the behind the scenes footage. You kind of just guys running around a gym um, doing walking and playing with guns and stuff. Um, how kind of effective was it and how hard was it to to do motion capture back then? Um, it, it was a nightmare. So we didn't, we didn't know how to do 3D characters at all. Um, we thought that with the number of people we needed on screen, we couldn't do sort of proper wireframe, sort of polygonal characters. Um, and I think that probably is still the case. So we came up with this terrible way. We called them meatball men because they were these awful where you can see them in the game. They're sort of lots of sprites stuck on top of each other that kind of rotate around and just look sort of like 3D people, but but not really. Um, so we we wanted to be able to drive all the animation for those things from motion capture. Um so again, motion capture was a brand new thing. Um, no one that I knew had had any had, had done anything with it before. I think Fergus was wanted to set up a motion capture studio because he was um, selling the company. He was selling Probe uh, to Accolade, Acclaim, Acclaim, I think. So he was wanting to make it look like you know he had everything that necessary for the future of three D game development. Um, so we were sent in there pretty much as, as guinea pigs. We got the data back, and it was it was glitchy and terrible, um, and it needed to be cleaned up. And again, if you look if you look um, on sort of videos about you know how motion capture works on on YouTube and stuff, you'll see that you have to hire an animator to clean it up. Basically, there's no such thing as just pure motion capture. You have to go in and clean it. But we didn't know that. Um, so I had all this animation data of people walking and running and jumping and it was just glitchy and it popped and, you know, points wiggled and moved. Um, but I'd thought, you know, I didn't know what was going on, um, and tried to, to write software to kind of smooth it out and figure it out. But in the end, deadlines prevailed and we just had to go with, with what we had. So if you look at the, the animation, uh, it's terrible. It's, you know, people walk around, they jitter and stutter and it's just not good at all but it was good fun i mean we had um an uh we hired an actor to to do all the the um the running and the the, the acrobatics for us and that was good fun and we'd say to him right i'm imagine you're being shot and he'd you know, fall over and jump and um we had a big list of things that he needed to do for us um and then i think we just scaled him vertically he was quite tall i seem to recall um, so rather than making everyone in the game tall, I sort of applied a random scale factor vertically so that you know, there were short people and tall people. And again, I don't think that um, that works. I think with hindsight, probably we should have motion captured some short people as well as some tall people <laughs> and probably some women as well, you know, because their hips work differently. 
Um, but you know, we we knew nothing back then. I think it's really cool as well that you did document this. I mean, you've mentioned a few times about the making of documentary. And the, I mean, you're actually, we were talking about it before we started recording, you're essentially vlogging back then. And now people can watch kind of the, the behind the scenes footage on YouTube today. Yes. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, so I don't know how much footage there is, maybe like an hour's worth, something, something like that. Um, it is nice to look back at it. it. It's funny. It feels so recent to me. I think those events um, were so significant um, to me that they, they feel very recent. But I look at it and I think, my goodness, I was so young. Um, but all the people, so I've stayed in touch with a number of the people from the video and you look at them and you go, oh, they were so young as well. I know we had one one of our um, level designers, a guy called Alec, Alec Prenter, um, who was, uh, we hired him straight out of school. He was 17 uh, and the game was launched with an 18 certificate. So theoretically, he wasn't allowed to actually play the game that he'd just been mapping, which always, always <laughs> amused us back then. But most of us on that team, I, I had the most experience. I'd done you know, a lot of games, as we've discussed, but most of the other people were fairly new to the industry and we hired people out of school um, because we, did, we didn't understand how many people you needed to make a game of that scale. And so I just kept going back to Fergus saying, oh, we need more people. We need more people. And he, being being a businessman, was saying, well, I can't afford any more people. You know, you can if you can hire someone for 10 grand a year or whatever, you can get them. I said, oh, okay. And so we were hiring people who were desperate to work and had no experience and would work for virtually for free. Um, and it is amazing, I think, that we actually got the game finished um, because we were just making up as we went along. It was uh, panicky times. Well, if people want to get a look at the uh, behind the scenes, I'll put a link in our show notes as well. Um, obviously, the Mayday um, Die Hard Trilogy 2 game yeah. uh, a few years later in 2000. I mean, did you play that? And what, what did you think of it? So the backstory for that um, is that after Die Hard Trilogy, um, I left Probe and I set up my own company. Um, and I had offers from a number of publishers to, to, to do some work for them, um, one of them being Fox. And Fox said... Um, can come and write us a sequel um and i was originally very keen to do that um but they had different management in place and they said we want you to write this game and they they basically had someone there had designed what they wanted the game to be um and i was in the games industry then i still you know and for the rest of my career was in the games industry because i just wanted to make stuff up and make things blow up and just do fun stuff and the idea of being told you know, this is what you have to do, particularly when I was feeling sort of arrogant and I, I've just made you this amazing game that everyone seems to love. Well, who are you coming and telling me, you know, what to do? Um, meanwhile, um, Sony, I, I had an original game that I'd pitched to Sony and Sony had said, yes, go and make us this game. Uh, so I signed with Sony instead of with, with um, Fox. So when the game came out, Die Hard Trilogy 2, I actually wanted it to be a failure because I thought I would be very gutted if it came out and it was phenomenally amazing. And I would think, oh, no, I missed out on that. Um, and my memory is, you know, I was very biased that it wasn't wasn't that good. Uh, and I was kind of pleased that it wasn't so good. Um, and the flip side of that story is that the game I developed um, for Sony came out, a game called Terracon on, on PlayStation, and that sank without a trace. Um, so... It didn't work out well on the other, the other side as well. Probably with hindsight, I would have been financially better off had I written um, Die Hard Trilogy 2 and just, you know, put up and shut up and just done what I was told and, and got it published. 
Um, but, you know, that's hindsight. Well, Terracom was an interesting one as well because it, it only got released in Europe, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, how, how come that happened? Um, I'm not sure. There was some sort of tie-in. Um, I, I, I've seen that you, you've spoken to Charles Cecil. I think that there was some tie-in with some of Charles Cecil's titles um, that Europe, um, Sony Europe were doing. So they had a lot of developers that were working for them. And I think they were saying, here's here's a bunch of titles. Uh, and I think it was, yeah, there was a, a load of some titles that Sony US didn't want to take. It wasn't just Terracon. There were some other things in there as well. Um, that's that's my memory. But it's it's weird that I'm, uh, obviously I'm incredibly biased um, because I, I think Terracon is, is great. And I look back at it and again, technically wise, it does some astounding things for PlayStation 1. Um, and that's not just me. That's me and the other team that, that I built. They're fantastic, very smart people, very talented. Um, um, and we got the same reviews. We got like, I remember we were reviewed in the same episode issue or the one before um, Spyro the Dragon. And we got the same level reviews. And I thought, yes, this is going to be great. It's going to do really well. And then sank without a trace. Um, but again, I think it's a marketing hype uh, and that we misunderstood what the public want wanted. So we, we made... Uh, sort of an alien-based game. And I think that was at the time when PlayStation was looking for more uh, sort of family-friendly products like like Spyro the Dragon. And we were a bit too hardcore, I think. Again, that's another lesson I would have learned with hindsight. Make the same game, but make it um, yeah, less about giant sort of robots and things. Make it more more friendly. Well, moving to your life today, Simon, I know these days you're a writer. Um Tell us about that then, and the, the titles that you've worked well, on. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not technically really a writer, although I've written a book. Um, I'm now, in fact, for my day job, I work at Google. I'm a, a manager again, an engineering manager at Google, uh, where I've been for seven years. I worked for um, four years on the the Chrome browser um, for for mobile devices. So if you've got uh, an Android device and you use Chrome, um, then it's smart, it's smooth and friendly and nice to use. Uh, and you can thank me and and my team for for doing that. And I mean, I nice. should own up. Say there are a thousand people working on Chrome, so I'm a small again, a small small part of that, <laughs> that bigger thing. But you know, um, so that was good. Now I'm working on uh, on the Play Store side of things again with a, a small a small team that that, that I run. Um, but I find that uh, when when I'm doing my engineering manager role, and I get to do a little bit of coding, but but not much. I do miss the creative aspect that games used to give me. Um, and so sort of part of that creative side comes out uh, is, is, is writing. Um, so, yes, I've written uh, a couple of books. One was so terrible, I just said, this is never going to see the light of day. Uh, and it didn't. I didn't do anything with it. Uh, and then about six months ago now, maybe less than that, um, I, I published a book called Running Mate, which is a sci-fi um sci-fi novel set around the American elections in 2150 uh, where it's become legal to kill the president of the United States uh, <laughs> and it's a, it's an interesting tale so if any of your listeners are, are interested in sort of sci-fi and um, it's kind of hardcore sci-fi machine intelligence all that kind of stuff uh, and it's got a, a lot of humor in it as well they could do they could do worse than picking up running mate 
Can you get that off Amazon? That then? is, that is available on, on Amazon, yeah. yeah. Well, Simon, it's been incredible reminiscing about you know, the golden age of video games with you. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories with us. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And if you do ever get an itching to, uh, you know, do those Commodore 64 games that you dream about, you know, we'd love to get you back on if you uh, ever decide to do something I'll like that. I'll be in touch, yeah.